Hi, everyone. Before we start, just a quick reminder that you can get a copy of my book, The Fix, or the electronic or audible version from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, or at all major retailers. In reading The Fix, you'll learn how gender inequality works, what the 17 most common barriers are that all women face, and how gender inequality creates challenges to men's fulfillment of work. Most importantly, you'll learn what we can do to remove these obstacles and how we can make workplaces work for everyone. So get your copy today and let me know what you think by leaving a review on Amazon. A lot of the discussion and research on like unconscious bias training and things like that, I think that's necessary but insufficient. We tend to focus on conscious inclusion, trying to give people skills on how they can actually draw the best out of people and bring them into the workforce, bring them into the meetings, sponsor people, give them big opportunities, and coach them and and help them develop. All too often, the straight white senior males in an organization, they came up through connections that benefited them that maybe happened off hours or after dinner or after whatever. And people struggle to create those same moments with people that are different than them for a variety of reasons. With that insight, we started to build interventions where we could actually then help people provide coaching, provide sponsorship, identify who the good sponsors in an organization are and load them up, you know, give them even more to do. I'm your host, Michelle King, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. I have always struggled with the idea that we need a business case for diversity and inclusion. It seems inherently misogynistic because there isn't a business case for why we need so many white men in leadership positions, but yet somehow we need one for all underrepresented groups of work. Also, rarely does a business case outline the benefits that men stand to gain. By understanding the challenges gender inequality creates for men, the business case is clear. Changing the status quo will of course serve women, but it will also free all men to pursue new paths to power and their identities outside of work. Business cases tend not to include the benefits outside of financial gain, which limits our understanding of why creating a culture of equality truly matters to our individual advancement and fulfillment of work. Having said all of this, I do think it's important to take stock of the gains we're making when it comes to diversity and inclusion, if nothing more than to remind businesses that they simply won't be able to compete without a more diverse workforce and inclusive culture. On this episode, I'm joined by Kevin Dolan, a senior partner with McKinsey, who will unpack the latest research report by McKinsey entitled Diversity Wins, How Inclusion Matters, which makes a clear case for why diverse companies are now more likely than ever to outperform less diverse peers on profitability. Kevin will also share why companies need to double down their DNI efforts today in the wake of COVID-19 and what each of us can do to prepare for the post-pandemic workplace. Despite the glaring evidence that diversity and inclusion should be a priority, especially amidst the global pandemic, 
The latest McKinsey report, Diversity Wins, How Inclusion Matters, finds that some organisations and leaders have pulled back their efforts, stating that diversity and inclusion is a luxury they cannot afford. This kind of logic makes it clear that some leaders still fail to understand the real benefits to be gained from investing in diversity and inclusion programs. Here, Kevin shares why consistently making the case for diversity and inclusion is so important. I mean, number one, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, a lot of our research has been focused over the last five, 10 years on the business case for DNI. And, you know, all, all too often within companies, you have a few different camps. And those camps, they view DNI efforts differently. They view representation, they view women, people of color. LGBTQ plus individuals very, very differently. And you have camp one who are the folks that they just intuitively get it. They realize that talent comes in all shapes and sizes and comes in all forms and that most of our talent has been overlooked for a very, very long time. You have camp two, which tends to be, you know, the senior white males in most organizations that are at the senior levels. They hear it, they want to do something about it, but they've been trained over a very long period of time that if you're going to make an investment, there needs to be a return. And then you've got the third camp, which is really just a, quite apathetic. We tend to call that the silent majority. And so what we've seen over the last five to 10 years is that there's been really good work done where camp one has worked with camp two <laughs> to help them understand why this matters. It is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to attract talent and Make sure that you are refreshing the talent of an organization. And we've proven that it's also good for business. And in order to influence that second camp, quite often you do need a business case for diversity and inclusion. We've done three elements of of research on this. The first about 10 years ago, where we looked at the power of parity and found that from a macro standpoint, that if all levels of talent could participate in the workforce, it would create $28 trillion of economic contribution basically just doubling the U.S. and China GDP. And then five years ago, we did it again, where we looked at a thousand companies across about 14 different countries and found that companies that were in the top quartile on diversity and inclusion outperformed and delivered more economic profit, outperformed by about 30%. And, And it was a correlation and so everyone always sort of says, oh, it's correlation or causation. You know, what is it? Maybe it's a good company and they therefore are more representative and diverse. And just this year, we published some new research that actually proves the causation. And so we did longitudinal studies to show that companies that have been the fast movers on DNI are actually also growing their profit and growing their economic contributions which is really first in the world. We're happy that we are able to start to prove that hypothesis and bring that to bear because it does show not only is this the right thing to do for society and for talent and to create opportunities for, for everyone, but it's also good for the bottom line. The idea that building a business case for diversity is just another way to reach a broad audience is an important point because as much as I dislike the need for stating the business benefits to a more equal workplace, The aim with this messaging is to try and be inclusive by reaching as many people as possible. Here, Kevin shares the business case for having a diversity and inclusion business case. I bristle at the fact that we, you know, somehow need a business case as well. Outside of DNI, we've done a lot of work in driving 
change and culture change in organizations. And through that work, we've learned that there are, in any population of people in a business or people in society, people typically have five sources of meaning, five reasons why they would do something. And for most people, they have one out of those five that govern their decisions or govern their actions and their beliefs. And the five things are doing the right thing for, could be society, doing the right thing for customers, doing the right thing for a team, doing the right thing for the company, like business, and then doing the right thing for themselves. And in any population, this is maybe not scientific, you know, it's sort of 20% across each of those five. It's pretty evenly mixed. And we'll run examples where you'll get people in and actually ask them, which one is it? And, and people do self-select in and, uh, and say, look, I'm a customer guy or I'm a, I'm a business person or I, I actually just focus on myself because that's what I'm here for. One of the major takeaways from this year's report is that diversity alone is not enough. Companies must create a culture that truly values difference if they want to reap the benefits of having a more diverse workforce. An inclusive workplace is really just one where leaders lead in a way that is inclusive, where managers are held accountable for the cultures they create, where there's fairness and transparency when it comes to opportunities for development, promotions and pay rises, where people feel like they can be themselves at work without the daily encounter of bias and discrimination. Even relatively diverse companies face significant challenges in creating this type of work environment because it requires a sustained commitment from leaders. Here, Kevin explains why diversity does not always equal inclusion. You've seen a lot of the discussion and research on like unconscious bias training and things like that. I think that's necessary but insufficient. We tend to focus on conscious inclusion, trying to give people skills on how they can actually draw the best out of people and bring them into the workforce, bring them into the meetings, sponsor people, give them big opportunities, and coach them and, and help them develop. And the reason sponsorship is so important is that you know all too often the straight white senior males in an organization, they came up through connections that benefited them that maybe happened off hours or after dinner or after whatever. And people struggle to create those same moments with people that are different than them for a variety of reasons. With that insight, we started to build interventions where we could actually then help people provide coaching, provide sponsorship, identify who the good sponsors in an organization are and load them up, you know, give them even more to do, you know, which actually is quite energy building. And then, you know, continue like through all of this to just educate people and learn. It is about, you know, the beliefs that we have around, from a gender standpoint, the roles of men and women in the house and in the, in the workplace. There's a bunch of stereotypes that are difficult for many people to talk about. And I think the events of this week, exposing the challenges that we have, talking about race and understanding and coming to terms with what Black Americans have gone through, that is very difficult inside many companies for people to talk about. They just don't have a good vocabulary for it. Uh, and so I think all of us are very hopeful and we're all trying to make strides to, to try to learn that vocabulary so that we can actually listen and we can actually talk. But all of those things need to come to the forefront so that you can consciously include people. COVID-19 is confronting companies around the world with a daunting degree of disruption. Companies that pull back on their diversity and inclusion efforts now 
may be placing themselves at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to future productivity, profitability, growth, and renewal. Some of the qualities that characterize diverse and inclusive companies, like innovation and resilience, will be needed in a much greater amount as companies try to recover from the crisis. Here, Kevin shares why diversity and inclusion matters now more than ever. I think three things that are happening right now that make diversity and inclusion in a remote work environment particularly important. So some of these are reasons why it's important. Some of these are just realities and challenges to to overcome. But there has been a lot of good work done, and there is more inclusion and representation in workforces today relative to, to where it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. That said, in this current environment, particularly for women, many women have lost their childcare and they are handling probably three times as much of a load as they were prior to this. And the same double standard, the same issues of double work that existed before still exist. Nothing has really changed except that the fact that school wasn't there parents in an overburdened way, women, are dealing with much more in this. And so it's been really hard for parents, whether they're single parents or or, or married, to to keep up at work. The expectations haven't really changed. And the companies are trying to talk about, oh, let's look out for our employees and things like that. But it quite often it becomes lip service rather than actual programs or shifts or pausing and reducing work for everybody. And I think everybody's been struggling with this as we get into two months, three months of lockdowns. And so that differential impact that is felt by women or by people whose parents or or loved ones have been impacted by COVID and, and, you know, they've gone from just doing a good job at work to being, you know, having to do a good job at work, having to cook every meal, having to be the IT superintendent for their children's school having to be the, the caretaker and the person that's driving people you know, to, to doctor's visits and things like that. I mean, it's an incredible burden that many people are bearing. So that's one. I think two is the missed opportunity. I mean, with some of the technology tools that we have, one of the concepts in unconscious bias training is this concept of covering. The fact that when you come to work, you put a shell on and, and you, you kind of show that you are one of the crowd. And in this environment, people are wearing more casual clothing there's a literal window into people's homes. There's judgment about that's a nice fireplace or you've got beautiful art on your walls versus, you know, kind of an apartment with just a blank wall or, you know, whatever. And so that concept of covering has kind of taken new meaning. And you see people with virtual backgrounds versus real backgrounds, or you see people just kind of saying, look, I'm going to be my whole self. But it's a huge opportunity to just celebrate everybody is who they are and that we're all going through this together and, and this leveling. And companies that aren't taking advantage of that are missing an historic opportunity to bring people together. And then thirdly, it is important. There's a lot of bad behaviors in all meetings. We all know about mansplaining. We all know about lack of attribution of ideas to the person whose idea was really there. And also just the kind of chronic issue where people assume that good performance is correlated to the amount that you talk in a meeting. In this environment where you literally have quite often a half to a third of the people in a meeting actually visible on the screen. Some people with their cameras on, some people with their cameras off, it really exacerbates that. And it's very easy for people who perhaps are making dinner, caring for children, doing whatever, or just frankly exhausted and haven't been able to to shower that day. And they're just taking the meeting as a call, which we used to do a lot more. 
it's very easy for them to be forgotten. And it's very easy for people to, because they're dialing in on their cell phone rather than having their name, which is what the person that has the, the actual video screen on, they've got their, their area code. And you're constantly trying to figure out is the 646 or 212, like you know, who is, who's who. And so it's very, very easy for people to be out of sight, out of mind. And so conscious inclusion and consciously thinking about that in this environment is critical because we don't have the ability to actually look around the room and see people's faces or body language or any of that sort of stuff. It's, it's much more difficult in this environment. The McKinsey Report finds that companies with greater gender diversity are 25% more likely to experience above-average profitability. Similarly, companies with greater ethnic and cultural diversity are 36% more likely to experience above-average profitability. It's clear that companies who take a systemic approach to building a more diverse leadership team only stand to benefit from it. But for organizations who have male-only leadership teams or male-dominated leadership teams, it can be difficult to know where to start. Here, Kevin shares the action businesses can take to improve representation, even if they're lagging behind. I think many companies are asking, you know, what's the big idea? What's the bold idea? Sadly, there's not a silver bullet. I've been in several sessions where People will ask for bold ideas, you give them the bold ideas, and they go, well, that's not bold. We want something even bolder. And then you provide some other more basic ideas, like sharing metrics publicly, like Google is doing. You can find out the representation metrics across Google. Some more companies are doing that. Or linking some portion of executive compensation to representation and inclusion outcomes. There are some companies starting to do that, but not enough leaders on that. But you think about the performance that most companies are able to drive on a financial basis. And it is largely driven by the fact that executives are compensated on it and people are bonused on it. And it is made very public. And so you've got that peer pressure, public pressure to perform. We don't have that on talent metrics. But I'd argue that talent is more important than the capital that companies employ. And to me, those are a couple big innovations that we're starting to help some industries figure out how to do. And it's very tough because you don't want companies to be scared of sharing bad news. You actually want to celebrate them for sharing metrics that aren't good or metrics that aren't perfect because it helps them demonstrate that they know that they've got a problem. They know that they've got a challenge that they want to overcome. And putting it out there, sharing it with people is a huge signal to the organization and to the world that says, look, we're, we're open for ideas. We'd like help. So to me, that's where I'd love to see companies going in treating kind of representation and inclusion metrics just like you would P&L on the balance sheet. Finally, Kevin shares one action that each of us can take to practice inclusion at work. I think the biggest thing that I could offer is send a note to somewhere between three and five people that look or are different from you and ask them to go have a coffee with you next week. And just sit down for a 30-minute coffee, 15 minutes. You can do it by Zoom. You can do it in person and just learn about them. And then in that discussion, share about yourself and think about in that meeting as you prepare for it, the time that you have been different or that you felt different or that you felt isolated. And you don't have to share that moment in the first interaction, but do appreciate that the more you share, the more you're gonna learn about other people and the more you're gonna build upon. To me, those are the first moments that help build true sponsorship where you're then creating opportunities for people. So 
my fix is invite three people to a coffee and do it one-on-one. When it comes to building a more inclusive and diverse workplace, there is no quick fix. Rather, we need companies to take a long-term approach and commit to advancing underrepresented groups into leadership positions. We also need companies to hold leaders and managers accountable for their diversity and inclusion efforts so that they own it. Companies also need to analyse their promotion and pay processes and the criteria behind them to ensure they're transparent and fair. Companies should uphold a zero-tolerance policy for discriminatory behaviour, like bullying and harassment, and actively help managers and employees to identify and address microaggressions. Finally, every organisation should take active steps to build a culture where all employees feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. And this starts with managers making the time to get to know their employees' different identities and needs. So in other words, go and get that cup of coffee that Kevin talked about. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a quick reminder that you can sign up to my monthly newsletter at michellepeking.com. You can also reach out to me through the website for interview requests or to be featured on the show. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.